Thanks for listening to the Refuel Podcast. Be sure to tune in every Thursday for a new episode. All right, guys. Um, thank you for coming tonight. Tonight is our um, tonight is our second installment. Sorry, I'm a little late getting up. Um, you know how um, some of you know I've, I inhaled paint over the weekend. Didn't mean to, so my voice is not doing so hot. Um, so if you'll bear with me, I'm not an angry guy, even though it sound I may sound angry tonight. I'm not a very angry guy. So. Um, so just bear with me. I'm not yelling, even though I'm probably my voice is going to sound a little strained. Um, we started a series called Faking It, and we're talking about dodgeball tonight. Uh, we've been talking about games that Christians play, and we're talking about dodgeball tonight. So, do what? <laughs> that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. Um, we're talking about dodgeball, and some of you, does anyone have like, that's like traumatic experience for you like dodgeball do they are you still allowed to play dodgeball at school is that like a thing okay yeah so like of course like when I was in school though I went to a Christian school by the way so they loved when people killed each other um but (laughs) they were all for violence um so we played dodgeball and let me explain how this how this scenario usually worked um you you you'd the whistle would blow, you'd go, you'd retrieve the ball, and you'd just start, you know, throwing at each other. But it would always come down to there would be one person left on one team and, like, a couple people left on the other team. And usually those couple people that were left were, like, dodgeball pros. <laughs> and the one kid that was left was the one that hid behind everyone else. So he was, like, you know, kind of like the small one that didn't get seen, maybe not the most athletic one. So you'd have these big, you know, like, you know, these big bodybuilder guys with these dodgeballs, and they're just sitting there waiting. They're not throwing the balls because they don't want to give them up because they know in a, in a couple minutes that coach is going to blow the whistle. And you know what it means when that coach blows the whistle, right? Foul line. means you can go all the way up to the foul line. So you take that ball, you go all the way up to the foul line. At that point, at that point, this kid is like up against the wall like this. And these guys get these grins on their face. They time it all together, and they just, I mean, you can hear the whistles of the balls as they're heading towards the guy's head, you know, and, he, and, and, and you know, of course, he ends up with, like, whelps all over his body. Um, so dodgeball is all about hitting someone as hard as you can with a ball. That's really what it comes down to. Um, so we've been talking about games Christians play and how sometimes Christians pretend to be Christian, but they're really not living Christian. So last, year, last week we talked about how Christians play hide-and-seek. They think they can hide their sins from God, but you can't hide sin from God. And that's what we learned last week from Revelation chapter 3. Tonight we're talking about dodgeball because maybe you've had, chances are, unfortunately, you've probably had this experience. That you've been ganged up on by a couple of Christians. And they didn't hit you with dodgeballs. But they ganged up and they hit you with judgment. Or they saw you stumble or they saw you mess up. They didn't give you a minute to explain yourself. They just gang-tackled you. They gang-tackled you. And I've, that, I've had that happen to me. You may have had that happen to you. Maybe you're one of the ones who's ganged up. But Christian, one of the games Christians play, and one of the worst games Christians play is dodgeball. Because we have this tendency to kick people while they're down. And maybe you've experienced that and there's a story in the Bible that we're going to talk about tonight where Christians, not Christians, but religious people played 
dodgeball, only instead of using dodgeballs, they used rocks. And they tried to kill someone because of their sin. If you have your Bible, open up to John chapter 8. Um, while you're doing that, I'm going to pick up one of these rocks here. Um, how many of you in your Bible, how many of you in your Bible, that section there with John 8, it's like either italicized or it's like paragraphed in. If you have a NIV, ESV, NASB, NLT, um, Holman version, um, <laughs> It's probably like that. How many of you, your John 8, 1 through 11 looks kind of funny? Looks kind of funny, doesn't it? If you have the New King James or the King James Version, it's going to look totally normal. How many of you above, actually John um, seven fifty three? there's a little note above it. Any of y'all have that? A little note above it. And that's what I have in my Bible too, and it says, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 through 8 through through 8:11. A few manuscripts include these verses or wholly in part after John 7:36, John 21:25, Luke 21:38 or Luke 24:53. This is kind of a confusing section of scripture because of the way that we got the Bible. And I'm just going to take like five minutes and kind of, because to me, if I read this and I didn't know what this was about, I'd be like, okay, so if this wasn't originally in the Bible, what else was not originally in the Bible? And can I trust the Bible? Or maybe I'm the only one that asks questions like that, but I think you do too. So I want to explain, take just a couple minutes and explain this verse to you before we look at it. Um, just because I think it's important. I want you to trust that the, the book that's in your hand is the word of God. So let me explain how we got our Bible. The New Testament, which is the last, um, the last 27 books of the Bible, was written shortly after Jesus lived. It was the witness of Jesus. So here's how we got our Bible. The book of John, for example, Jesus had a disciple, a friend, a follower named John. John was an eyewitness to Jesus, and John wrote down everything he saw that Jesus did. As John wrote down everything he saw, he did it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He saved this gospel and he gave it to a ch the church in Jerusalem or another church. And they're like, this is really great. We need to make a copy of this and send it to another church so they can read it. And what started happening is you had a cop. You didn't have a Xerox. You couldn't run off copies of that. But you couldn't push a button and run off copies. They had to copy every word by hand. Can you imagine copying the book of John? By hand, that would take a long, you'd have some serious writer's cramp. But they copied it by hand and by hand and by hand and by hand. So what we have is not, we can't go back and say, this, was the, this is the original piece of paper. They didn't have paper back then. This is, this is not the original, we can't go back and say, this is the original piece of papyrus, papyrus that John wrote on. Because here's another thing about those ancient documents. They were written on dried leaves they would disintegrate within a couple hundred years. So the original book of John that was written by John, we, we can't find, you know, you're not going to be able to find it. What you have are meticulously copied copies and copies of copies and copies of copies. And God has miraculously preserved his word. But the reason some of you, your Bible has John chapter 8, <clears throat> 1 through 11 in italics is because not every copy of John 
in the original manuscripts has this section in it. So, of course, I've been doing a lot of research in this, and I've read a lot of what the scholars have to say. And whether or not they believe this was originally written by John, here's what they have determined. Here's what they've determined. That this is a true historical account of something Jesus did that was believed and transmitted from eyewitnesses of Jesus from the time he lived all the way through to where it first appeared in John. So we can know with certainty that this, this happened. This happened. But sometimes we question whether or not the Bible, you know, how do we know the Bible is true and how do we know it's, it's, it's a legitimate representation of what Jesus said and what Jesus did? I just want to demonstrate something really quick for you. So I want you to believe that these words are the words of God and these words are true. So let me demonstrate for you just for a minute. How many of you have ever heard of a guy, and it's not Plato like what kids play with, but Plato the philosopher. Have you ever heard of Plato? He's really boring, <laughs> okay? So if you have heard of him, I'm sorry. Um, but Plato, he was a philosopher, a Greek philosopher that lived in 400 B.C. He lived 400 years before Christ. If you go to any philosophy class at Marshall, you know, with a professor with the little, you know, with, with a polyester suit with the little um, elbow protectors, you know, the really smart professors. <laughs> you, you, the first guy he's going to talk about is Plato. And he's going to read to you the writings of Plato. Would it be interesting for you to know that the writings of Plato, how many, you know how many manuscripts we have of his writings, copies of copies of his writings? We have seven of them. We have seven manuscripts. None of them are complete. They all contain fragments of what he said, so they kind of pieced the fragments together to form what he said. Another measure of something's authenticity is how long has it been since the original was written to the latest copy. So Plato's writings were done in 400 B.C., and the earliest copy we have was in 1000 A.D. So how much time has transpired between when Plato did his original writing and the earliest copy we have? Math whizzes. 1,400 years. Is it possible that something got lost over those 1,400 years? It's pretty possible, right? And we have seven manuscripts from Plato. So Plato, they will teach it in college as a fact based on seven incomplete manuscripts that were a thousand, written a thousand years after Plato lived. So remember that. Some of you have, well, we did this when I was at school. We had to reenact the killing of Caesar. Have you ever had to do that? You know, the whole et tu brute? You know where that comes from? That comes from the writings of Caesar and his narration of the Gallic Wars. Does that, do I sound smart? I'm really just reading this off a piece of paper that I wrote down because I knew I'd forget it. That happened between 144 B.C. If you go to any classical literature class, they're gonna, are they going to say, this? we think this may have happened, or this is just a good story, but it's not true. They're going to teach this as 100% truth. Would you be interested to know that all those writings by Caesar were based on 10 manuscripts. Not all of them were complete manuscripts, and those manuscripts are a thousand years old. They were written in 900 AD. So a thousand years had transpired between when the action happened and when these were written. One of my favorite names, uh, Roman names, is Tessicus. Ta I can't even say it right. Tacitus. He wrote the Annals 
Make sure you say it right. He wrote the Annals of Greco-Roman History. So if you, <laughs> if you open your world history books and you study the Roman Empire, how many of y'all, I hated world history, by the way, but how many of y'all have had to study the Roman Empire and world history? You've had to do it, right? You had a world history book, and it was the most, probably the most, one of the most boring history books you've ever had. Am I correct? But do they teach it as, like, these are just fun stories, but we don't know if they happened? They make you memorize names and dates, and the names are hard to remember, and the dates are hard to remember. Would it be interesting, you know, don't talk smack to your world history teacher, but all of that is based on 20 manuscripts that were written by Tacitus, and they're 1,000 years old too. The action happened in 100 AD, the latest action, and these were the earliest dates we have are 1100 AD. So we've got philosophy that's taught as fact, we've got classical literature that's taught as fact, and we have history that's taught as fact. So how does the Bible, which was written during that same period of time, stack up to the seven manuscripts of Plato, to, to the ten manuscripts of Caesar, to the 20 manuscripts of Tacitus, all over a thousand years written, at, written a thousand years after the action had transpired. Would you be interested to know that the Bible, this is, contains 2,500 sheets of paper. The Bible has Five thousand three hundred and sixty-six manuscripts on file, and are those manuscripts written a thousand years after the fact? No, the earliest one that we have to date, this is really cool, was written fifty years after Jesus died. We have the complete New Testament, two hundred twenty-five years after the fact. So the next time somebody tells you that your Bible is full of untruths and your Bible is just a hodgepodge book put together and it's not historically accurate, tell them to bring your world history book up to the lunch table and I want you to set it on fire if that doesn't get you kicked out of school. Because you can believe the Bible. You know what? You don't see notes like this that are in front of John 8. You don't see them in history books about the Greco-Roman Empire. You want to know why? Because they don't have manuscripts to compare against each other. They're just happy they, have, they can piece together one complete manuscript. But we've got 5,366 manuscripts that we can compare one against the other. And we can see any little variance. So this is incredible. You can trust your Bible. I just want you to know that. I put all the notes about this. Actually, I asked Wyatt to do it. I put all the notes from this in, its, in more elaborate detail on the app. So if you ever want to read up about this, I've got the sources, actually, too, so I'm not just making the, you know, pulling these numbers, you know, and, and saying, yeah, this is true. These are, the historians prove this. So you can trust your Bible. You can trust this story we're going to read, okay? So we're going to read this together. It's a short story, but it, it says everything you need to know about hypocrisy. So John chapter 8, it actually starts in chapter 7, verse 53. It says, then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this as a question, as a trap, in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with a finger. 
When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stopped, stooped down, and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is an incredible story, and as you can probably kind of piece together what happened just by what you've read here. There is, there's, a, there's a woman, Jesus is teaching, and all of a sudden, Jesus' teaching is interrupted by these Pharisees, these religious leaders, who forcibly bring a woman to him who had just been caught in the act of adultery. And they say, here you go, Jesus. They're testing him, right? They say, Jesus, this woman was caught cheating on her husband. The law says, the law of Moses, the law in the Old Testament says that because of what she did, she should be put to death. And they're like, okay, let's see what Jesus does here because he's all about love, right? So if he lets her off the hook, we can get him because he disobeyed the law of Moses. It was a trap. Jesus, who's very, who was always one step ahead of the Pharisees, he kind of plays it cool, and he continues his teaching and his writing in the sand, and they keep pressing him to come on. Come on, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? You going to let her go unpunished? You going to let her sin go unpunished? He looks at, up at him, and he says, whoever here who hasn't sinned, I'll let you be the first one to throw the stone at her and kill her. And then it says they all kind of like, with their tail tucked between their legs, walked away. And then Jesus has a conversation with this, with, with this lady, with this woman, and he says, I don't condemn you. I forgive you. Go leave and live a new life without sin. It's incredible what happens, but there are three questions that we want to ask here. Who are the Pharisees? Who is the woman? And who is Jesus? So those are the three questions we're going to think about in this passage that we know we can believe. Um, so the first question is, who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They were called teachers of the law, and you see this in the, in the passage here. It says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought this woman in adultery. So these were people who, they knew every part of the Old Testament in the Bible. They knew every part of the law of Moses. And what were they supposed to do with this law? They were supposed to teach it. But what were they doing rather than teaching it? They were enforcing it. That should be red flags to us too because too often, rather than tell people the story of God and tell people the truth of God, we just play the role as the enforcer. And that's not the role that God has called us to play. Um, they, these Pharisees, they were the original fakes. You know, we're talking about faking it. We're talking about living, pretending to live one way and acting another and pretending to be something you're not. They were the original ones. They were the puffed up ones, three-piece suit on Sunday, strutting their stuff in church. But inside, Jesus said, they were dead because they didn't really have belief in God. They didn't know God. They just knew the book. They just knew the writings of God. So they caught a woman in sin, and they dealt with sin the wrong way. And that's probably happened to you before. You've seen someone mess up. You've caught someone in sin, so to speak. The question is, how do we handle that when someone messes up? The Pharisees did it all wrong. So we're going to look at some ways that the Pharisees um, got it all wrong. And the first is they cast judgment on someone at the cost of people's time with God. 
Look at this verse 2. It said, At dawn he, being Jesus, appeared again at the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. You see what happens here? Jesus is teaching. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees come in and crash his party with this hypothetical scenario with this, with, with this woman. They cost people's time with Jesus. You know what? It's a good thing you didn't, if, if Jesus was in here and he was teaching, you come try to interrupt me hearing like the words, physical, audible words of Jesus, and you try to distract me. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to whip out my nine and pop you. Is there ain't nothing more important than hearing from Jesus? I may not actually do that. That's not a threat. Don't, don't call the bomb squad or something. Um, but that, you see what I mean? These people were hearing the words of God speaking, spoken audibly, and these Pharisees come strutting in with their religious fashion show trying to condemn this woman. Sometimes we're more focused on proving that somebody else messed up than we are spending time with God on our own. That's when we learn it's become an obsession of judging people rather than restoring people because it's getting away, you know, the way of our time with God. They also did it selectively. It says the teachers of the law brought a woman caught in adultery. You realize, the, you realize what's wrong with this picture, right? They brought a woman. It's a singular adjective. Can you apply a singular adjective to the act of adultery? What do you, I've got to be careful the way I word this, but what do you need in order to have adultery? Two people, right? Two people. They pick what was considered in the first century to be the weaker of the two. Because in the first century, being, being a woman meant that you, there, there are certain times you couldn't, this is a shame it was like this in the first century, but you couldn't talk to a man. Um, that you, there are certain times you couldn't even answer a man when he talked to you. You couldn't be alone with a man. So they, 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 were, they were just selective. And some of us, you know, we could see a, a whole group of people that's committing, doing something wrong, a whole group of people that should be called out, but we call out the weakest one. We call out the one that we want to exact judgment on. There's a whole group of people messing up, but rather than cast your judgment on the whole group of people, you're selecting the one that stole your boyfriend because <laughs> you got an agenda. And that's the, that's, that's the next thing. Um, they, they did it to shame someone. They, did, they, they brought this woman not because they cared about her, right? Did they care about her so much? No, they wanted to kill her. They brought her to shame her. They also brought her yeah, it says they brought her in front of everyone. It says in verse 3, they made her stand before the group. How embarrassing must that have been? The next thing is they did it to advance their own agenda. In verse 6, it tells us what their agenda was. It says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing them. They didn't care about this woman. They didn't even care about justice. They make us sound like, oh, well, we want to make sure the law of Moses is enforced. Well, first off, that's not correct because you didn't bring the man too. <laughs> You almost got me. Um, they didn't bring the man, too. They just brought the woman. So they don't care about justice. They don't care about justice. What they want to do is they want to catch Jesus in a trap. And some of you, you don't care about justice. The reason you're casting a stone at someone, the reason you've picked up a rock and you're ready to heave it at someone, you don't care about justice. You just want to get revenge. You just want to distract others from the sin that's in your own life. They did it to advance their own agenda. Verse 7, they did it obsessively. Jesus doesn't even entertain their question. He continues to teach. He, a lot of scholars believe that Jesus was writing certain scriptures and certain things that he was going to teach the crowd that had gathered. So he continues. He, he doesn't even pay them any attention. Sometimes that's what we should do when people bring us gossip and people bring us rumors. We should just give them the hand. 
talk to the hand, right? Um, but Jesus doesn't pay him any attention, and it says in verse 7, they kept on questioning him. Then it says he straightened up and told them, and you know what he told them. So they were obsessed. If you're more obsessed with casting judgment on others than you are with what God is doing in your life, you've got a problem. And in verse 9, we know they did it blindly because Jesus kind of points out the problem. They say, Jesus said, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. They're like, well, shoot. I mean, we didn't commit adultery, but we got sin in our lives. And it's funny, it says the older ones left first and then the younger ones because the older ones, they, they, they realized what Jesus was doing. They'd lived life long enough to realize they weren't perfect, but eventually everybody realized that. They were blinded. Some of you, you're, you're so busy pointing fingers at other people and throwing rocks at other, fing- at, other fingers, at other people that you don't realize that you have sin in your own life that needs to be taken care of. So that was the Pharisees. And who were the Pharisees? Unfortunately, sometimes the Pharisee is me. Sometimes the Pharisee is you, who's so blind to the sin in their own life, who's for so long faked it and not been real about the sin in their own life that all they can see is the sins of others. Sometimes you're the Pharisee. Sometimes I'm the Pharisee. The next question is, who was the woman? Culturally, like I said, the woman was considered less than a man in first century Palestine. It was wrong. It wasn't a good thing. But that's how it was, and she was in big trouble. Because the truth is, the law of Moses said, if people are caught in adultery, they should be put to death. That's what God's law said. So she was in trouble. Verse 3, it says she was caught in the act. Have you ever been caught in the act of something? You know how shameful that can be. Um, it says she was caught in the act, so we don't know. I I'm I'm, don't mean this to be graphic at all, but we don't know if she had time to get dressed. We don't know if she had time to put herself back together. It's likely that she had been dragged from the, the place that she was committing adultery to Jesus. So she was not only caught in the act, but everybody knew it, which is the next thing about her, is that she was shamed. She was caught in the act, didn't have time to get herself back together, and was brought before the group. Have you ever experienced the shame of sin? Maybe you haven't had your sin exposed to a large group of people, but you know that God sees it. Maybe you've had it exposed to your parents and you know the shame of others knowing about what you've done or the, you're anticipating the shame of what if my parents find out what I'm looking at on the internet? Well, what if my friends find out that I'm really a fake? And, and you, you are anticipating that shame. So you know the question of this, right? Who's the woman? The woman is me and you. Um, verse 5, she was guilty. The, te- the teachers were right. They just had the wrong motives. She said, they said, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, com- it commands us to stone such a woman. She was guilty. Here's, the, here's one of my favorite questions on this passage. The Pharisees say to Jesus, now what do you say, Jesus? What does Jesus say? Of course, he points back at the Pharisees and exposes what's wrong with them. But what does Jesus say to the woman? You see it in verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Remember when everyone left? He's like, hey, where's all your accusers now? Where'd they all go? What happened to them? Is it like, you know, two for one night at Fat Patty's? Like, like where did your accusers go? They left. That's what Jesus is saying to you. Hey, where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? 
The next thing, question we want to ask the woman, she's me and you. There have been times we've been caught in sin, and we're gracious for God's forgiveness. Verse 11, she was forgiven. And that final question is, who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who sees through our hypocrisy. He sees through our hypocrisy. Jesus said, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. The Pharisees didn't have Jesus fooled for one minute. And when you're faking it, you don't have Jesus fooled for one minute. He sees right through you. Jesus is the only just judge. You realize there were people, there was a mob of people standing around this woman who sinned with a stone ready to throw at her, but there was only one person who was truly worthy to throw that stone. Who was it? There was only one person in that group who was without sin, and it was Jesus. But here's what's cool about this. Jesus forgives. The only one who was worthy to throw the stone, you know what he did? He dropped it. And he offered forgiveness. That's really incredible. That's really incredible. And in verse uh, 11, we see that he restores. He says, I don't condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin. Jesus offers a new life. I got three application points, but in order for you to experience them with me, I want you to come over here, and I want you to grab a stone and stand on the tarp. It's a little weird. It's a little different. Okay? But come on. Come join me. Come get a stone. Come get a stone. Pick up your stone. You can go to the next slide, Jake, while we're waiting. Grab a stone. Everybody grab a stone. Everybody grab a stone. Come on in. There's plenty of stones to go around. You can say, I went to church and I got stoned. Grab a stone. Everybody got a stone? Pick one up. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to feel. I want you to hold on to that stone. I want you to hold it real hard. And I want you to feel how that stone feels in your hands. Okay? And this is going to be the first point, but I want you, don't want you to do it yet. If you're in the position of the Pharisee tonight, and you've been throwing stones at people, tonight what you need to do is you need to drop your stone, and you need to walk away just like those men did. The second point, go ahead, Jake, you can keep rolling through these. Uh, the second point is we should always seek to restore people, not condemn people. You know what it says in Galatians 6? It says if someone sins among you, he's talking to a church, you should with gentleness restore that person. There's only one person who's allowed to condemn, and it's Jesus. And what did he say? I don't condemn you. Here's the final thing, is get alone with Jesus. Here's the cool thing. When, when, all, the, when all those guys that were accusing her dropped their stones and they walked away, it was just her and Jesus. There'll be a time where you need to get away from all the people who are pointing their finger at you, and you need to realize who you are in Jesus. And who you are in Jesus is forgiven. I want you to think about this. Hold on to that stone real tight and think about this. Too often in our churches, we're real quick to throw rocks. I will admit to you today that I am not perfect, and I have to confess my sins on a daily basis. I did not make all the right choices in high school and in college. I did not always do what was honoring to God, and there's still times that I don't do what's honoring to God. By all accounts, I stand condemned to death just like that woman did. So I would invite any one of you 
who feels they can righteously judge me to throw a rock at me. Trey's getting way too excited about this. But here's what I want you to do. This is a different way to go to tag tonight. But this is what I want you to think about. I want you to feel that rock in your hand and remember that for every rock you throw in our youth group, if you really want to say I'm worthy to throw a rock, then by your definition, that means there's 30 other people who are worthy to throw a rock at you. That's not how it works. Only Jesus is worthy to throw the rock. And he dropped it, and he offered forgiveness. So here's what I want you to do. You can get, as you, you youngins like to say, lit down in tag. But what I want you to do is I want you to quietly, as you're leaving and going down that way to tag, drop your rock at the foot of the cross. And promise God that you'll rest in his righteousness and his forgiveness. So do that quietly, please, and head downstairs. Thanks again for listening to the Refuel podcast. If you have any questions or would like to review the notes from this podcast, be sure to download the Refuel app from the App Store on any mobile device.